0: Welcome to the Histrionics Podcast, where I review a few pieces of history that aren't very well known or deserve a little more attention. Today I'm going to discuss a unique assassination in London, the Galveston Hurricane of 1900, and the mysterious disappearance of a former Freemason. The events took place on September 7th, 8th, and 11th. September 7th, 1978. While walking across Waterloo Bridge in London, Bulgarian dissident Georgi Markov is assassinated, possibly by means of a ricin pellet fired from a specially designed umbrella. Georgi Markov was a Bulgarian dissident writer. He originally worked as a novelist, screenwriter, and playwright in his native country of Bulgaria until his defection in 1968. After relocating to London, he worked as a broadcaster and journalist for the BBC. Markov used his forums to conduct a campaign of sarcastic criticism against the incumbent Bulgarian regime, which had become hypercritical and malicious. Although some of his works were banned, Georgi Markov was a successful author. Between 1975 and 1978, Markov worked on his In Absentia reports an analysis of life in communist Bulgaria. They were broadcast weekly. Their criticism of the communist government and the party leader made Markov an enemy of the regime. Markov described life under the authoritarian rule, saying, Today, we Bulgarians present a fine example of what it is to exist under a lid which we cannot lift and which we no longer believe someone else can lift. And the unending slogan, which millions of loudspeakers blare out, is that everyone is fighting for the happiness of others. Every word spoken under the lid constantly changes its meaning. Lies and truths swap their values with the frequency of an alternating current. We have seen how personality vanishes, how individuality is destroyed, how the spiritual life of a whole people is corrupted to turn them into a listless flock of sheep. We have seen so many of those demonstrations which humiliate human dignity, where normal people are expected to applaud some paltry mediocrity who has proclaimed himself a demigod and condescendingly waves to them from above. On September 7th, 1978, Markov walked across the Waterloo Bridge in London and waited to take a bus to his job at the BBC. While at the bus stop, he felt a sharp sting on the back of his thigh. He looked behind him and saw a man picking up an umbrella off the ground. The man then hurried across to the other side of the street and got in a taxi. When he arrived at work, he noticed a small red pimple had formed where he was stung, and the pain was getting worse. That evening, he developed a fever and was admitted to St. James Hospital, where he died four days later, at the age of 49. Annabel Markov recalled her husband's view about the umbrella, Telling the BBC in April of 1979, He felt a jab in his thigh. He looked around and there was a man behind him who had apologized and dropped an umbrella. I got the impression, as he told the story, that the jab had not been inflicted by the umbrella but the man had dropped the umbrella as a cover to hide his face. Newspaper accounts claim that he had been shot in the leg with a pellet fired from an umbrella wielded by someone associated with the Bulgarian Secret Service. Investigations have discounted the theory that a pellet had been fired from an umbrella. It has been speculated that the Bulgarian Secret Service asked the KGB for help. During the autopsy, the doctor noted a red mark on the back of Markov's leg. He cut a tissue sample from the area with a matching sample from the other leg. These tissue samples were sent to a chemical and biological weapons laboratory, where a tiny pellet was found in one of the samples. The pellet measured 1.7 millimeters in diameter and was composed of 90% platinum and 10% iridium. It had two holes with diameters of 0.35 millimeters drilled into it. Further examination by experts could not detect any remnant of poison. Considering possible poisons, scientists hypothesized that the pellet might have contained ricin. Scientists also thought that the sugary substance had been used to coat the tiny holes. Creating a bubble that trapped the poison inside the cavities with a specially crafted coating designed to melt at human body temperature. After the pellet was inside Markov, the coating might have melted and released the poison to be absorbed into the bloodstream and kill him. KGB defector Oleg Kalugin alleged that the KGB arranged the murder, even presenting the Bulgarian assassin with alternatives such as a poisonous jelly to smear on Markov's skin. But to date, No one has been charged with Markov's murder. Kalugin stated that Markov had been killed using an umbrella gun. The Times has reported that the prime suspect is an Italian, Francesco Galino, who was last known to be living in Denmark. A British documentary, The Umbrella Assassin, interviewed people associated with the case in Bulgaria, Britain, Denmark, and America, and revealed that Galino is alive and well, and still traveling freely throughout Europe. Here's my take on the Markov assassination. It's awesome that he was speaking out against communism. It's a shame we don't have more people like him around today that acknowledge the reality around them. Uh, people with balls that speak out against demigods that are just making up their own rules. Uh, but with all that said, he don't fuck with the KGB. I don't know if he was aware that he was fucking with the KGB, but everybody knows that. The KGB will for know one. September 8, 1900, a powerful hurricane hits Galveston, Texas, killing between 6,000 and 12,000 people. It was the deadliest natural disaster in United States history. The city of Galveston was founded in 1839 and had weathered numerous storms, all of which the city survived with ease. In the late 19th century, Galveston was a booming town with the population increasing. It had many business buildings in a downtown section called The Strand, which was considered the Wall Street of the Southwest. The city's position along the Gulf of Mexico made it the center of trade in Texas and one of the busiest ports in the nation. With this prosperity came a sense of complacency, as residents believed any future storms would be no worse than previous storms. The Galveston Weather Bureau director, Isaac Klein, even wrote an article in 1891 stating that it would be impossible for a hurricane of significant strength to strike the island. 25 years earlier, the nearby town of Indianola was undergoing its own boom. Then in 1875, a powerful hurricane blew through, nearly destroying the town. Indianola was rebuilt, but a second hurricane 10 years later caused most of the town's residents to move elsewhere. Many Galveston residents took the destruction of Indianola as a lesson on the threat posed by hurricanes. Galveston is built on a low, flat island along the Gulf Coast. Many residents proposed a seawall be constructed to protect the city, but most of the population and the city's government dismissed their concerns. Isaac Klein cited his 1891 article that a seawall was not needed due to his belief that a strong hurricane would not strike the island. As a result, the seawall was not built and development activities on the island actively increased its vulnerability to storms. Sand dunes along the shore were cut down to fill low areas in the city, removing what little barrier there was in the Gulf of Mexico. On September 4, 1900, the Galveston Weather Bureau received warnings from the Bureau's central office in Washington, D.C. that a tropical storm had moved northward over Cuba. At the time, they discouraged the use of terms such as tornado or hurricane to avoid panicking residents in the path of any storm. The Weather Bureau forecasters had no way of knowing the storm's trajectory, as Weather Bureau Director Willis Moore implemented a policy to block telegraph reports from Cuban meteorologists at the Balin Observatory in Havana. Moore also changed the protocol to force local Weather Bureau offices to seek authorization from the central office before issuing storm warnings. Weather Bureau forecasters believed that the storm had begun a northward curve into Florida and that it would eventually turn northeast and emerge over the Atlantic. As a result, the Central Office of the Weather Bureau issued a storm warning in Florida from Cedar Key to Miami on September 5th. By the following day, a hurricane warning was in effect along the east coast from Cedar Key to Savannah, Georgia, while storm warnings were displayed from Charleston, South Carolina To Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, as well as Pensacola, Florida to New Orleans, Louisiana. Cuban forecasters adamantly disagreed with the Weather Bureau, saying the hurricane would continue west. One Cuban forecaster predicted the hurricane would continue into central Texas. In Galveston, on the morning of September 8th, the swells persisted despite only partly cloudy skies. Largely because of the unremarkable weather, few residents saw cause for concern. Few people evacuated across Galveston's bridges to the mainland and the majority of the population was unconcerned by the rain clouds that began rolling in by mid-morning. According to his memoirs, Galveston Weather Bureau Director Isaac Klein personally traveled by horse along the beach and other low-lying areas to warn people of the storm's approach. However. These accounts by Klein and his brother, Galveston meteorologist Joseph Klein, have been disputed. Although Isaac Klein is credited with issuing a hurricane warning without permission from the Bureau's central office, author Eric Larson points to Isaac's earlier insistence that a seawall was unnecessary and his notion that an intense hurricane could not strike the island, with Klein even considering it simply an absurd delusion to believe otherwise. Storm surges began flooding the city during the early morning hours of September 8th. The highest point in the city of Galveston was only eight and a half feet above sea level. The hurricane brought a storm surge of over 15 feet that washed over the entire island. Water rose steadily from 3 p.m. until 7.30 p.m. Eyewitness accounts indicated that the water rose about four feet in four seconds. An additional five-foot wave flowed through the city by 8.30 p.m. A cyclone dropped another foot of water on Galveston and wind speeds were between 100 and 140 miles an hour. All bridges connecting the island to the mainland were washed away. 15 miles of railroad were destroyed. Winds and storm surges downed electrical, telegraph, and telephone wires. The surge swept buildings off their foundations and dismantled them completely. Many buildings and homes destroyed other structures after being pushed into them by the waves, which even demolished structures built to withstand hurricanes. The area of destruction, in which nothing remained standing after the storm, consisted of almost 2,000 acres, with complete demolition of structures in the west, south, and eastern portions of the city. In the immediate aftermath of the storm, there was a three mile long, 30-foot wall of debris in the middle of the island. As severe as the damage was to the city's buildings, the death toll was even greater. Because of the destruction of the bridges and the telegraph lines, no word of the city's destruction was able to reach the mainland for two days. Rescuers arrived to find the city completely destroyed. A survey conducted in early 1901 indicated a population loss of 8,124, which was 20% of the population. The death toll was anywhere from 6,000 to 12,000. Most had drowned or been crushed by debris from homes that were destroyed. A number of fatalities also occurred after strong winds turned debris into projectiles. Many survived the storm itself, but died after several days of being trapped under the wreckage of the city, with rescuers unable to reach them. The rescuers could hear screams of the survivors as they walked on the debris, trying to rescue whoever they could. The dead bodies were so numerous that burying all of them was impossible. Initially, bodies were collected and loaded onto a barge. Hundreds of bodies were taken out to sea to be dumped. However, golf currents washed many of the bodies back onto the beach, and a new solution was needed. Funeral pyres were set up on the beaches, or wherever dead bodies were found, and burned day and night for several weeks after the storm. The authorities passed out whiskey to help the distraught men tasked with the gruesome work of collecting and burning the dead. The Galveston Hurricane of 1900 remains the deadliest natural disaster in U.S. history. Here's my take on the Galveston Hurricane. Hurricanes are common. They kill a lot of people. The ocean is probably one of the most powerful forces on Earth, if not the most powerful force on Earth. Uh, You can't get too comfortable anywhere. Because Mother Nature is a relentless, a beautiful but relentless whore. And um, don't rely on the word of some pompous asshole like Isaac Klein. September 11th. 1826, Captain William Morgan, an ex-Freemason, is arrested in New York after declaring that he would publish a book against Freemasonry. This sets into motion the events that led to his mysterious disappearance. Morgan was a resident of Batavia, New York, whose disappearance and presumed murder ignited a powerful movement against the Freemasons, a society that had become influential in the United States. After he announced his intention to publish a book exposing Freemason secrets, called The Mysteries of Freemasonry, he was arrested on trumped up charges of debt. He disappeared soon after and was believed to have been kidnapped and killed by Masons from Western New York. Morgan claimed to have been made a master mason while he was living in Canada, and he appears to have briefly attended a lodge in Rochester. In 1825, Morgan received the Royal Arch Degree at Leroy's Western Star Chapter No. 33, having declared under oath that he received the previous six degrees. It has never been established if he actually received those degrees, and if so, from which lodge. Morgan then unsuccessfully attempted to help establish or visit lodges and chapters in Batavia. He was denied participation by members who disapproved of his character, and even questioned his claims to Masonic membership. Morgan finally announced that he was going to publish an exposé critical of the Freemasons and revealing their secret degree ceremonies in detail. Morgan declared that a local newspaper publisher, David Cade Miller, had given him a sizable advance for the work. Several members of the Batavia Lodge published an advertisement denouncing Morgan for breaking his word by authoring the book. An attempt was also made to set fire to Miller's newspaper office and print shop. On September 11th, 1826, Morgan was arrested for supposed non-payment of a loan and allegedly stealing a shirt and tie. According to laws of the time, he could be held in debtors prison until restitution was made, which would have made it very difficult to publish his book. Morgan was jailed, and when Miller learned of this, he went to the jail to pay the debt and secure Morgan's release. Morgan was released, but then rearrested and charged with allegedly failing to pay a $2 tavern bill. While the jailer was away, a group of men convinced his wife to release Morgan. They walked to a waiting carriage, which arrived two days later in Fort Niagara. Shortly afterwards, Morgan disappeared. There are conflicting accounts on what happened next. The widely accepted version of events is that Morgan was taken onto a boat in the middle of Niagara River and thrown overboard where he presumably drowned, since he was never seen again in the community. In October of 1827, a badly decomposed body washed up on the shores of Lake Ontario. Many presumed it to be Morgan. However, the wife of a missing Canadian named Timothy Monroe positively identified the clothing on the body as the clothing that was worn by her husband, who disappeared at the same time. One group of Freemasons denied that Morgan was killed, alleging they had paid him $500 to leave the country. Morgan was reportedly seen later, including in other countries, but none of the reports were confirmed. Eventually, Eli Bruce, the sheriff in Niagara County and also a mason, was removed from office and tried for his involvement in Morgan's disappearance. He served 28 months in prison after being convicted of conspiracy for his role in kidnapping Morgan and holding him against his will before the disappearance. Three other Masons were convicted of taking part in the kidnapping and served sentences. Other Masons were tried and acquitted. Author Jasper Ridley suggests that Morgan was probably killed by local Masons, as all other scenarios are highly improbable. Historian Paul Jeffers also considers this the most credible explanation. Journalist C.T. Congdon cites a third-hand account that Morgan was murdered by zealous Freemasons. In 1848, a man named Henry Valence allegedly confessed on his deathbed to taking part in Morgan's murder. Here's my take on the disappearance of William Morgan. The Freemasons killed him, obviously. And now for a few events that deserve less attention. September 5th, 1698. In an effort to westernize his nobility, Tsar Pierre I of Russia imposes a tax on beards for all men except the clergy and peasantry. Listen, I'm tired of all the beards, but what an asshole. Maybe they should have a tax for being a grimy douchebag like Peter. And no douchebags get an exception. September 6th. 2018 Supreme Court of India decriminalized all consensual sex acts among adults in private Making homosexuality legal Uh, Welcome to the 21st century Maybe by 2025 you'll start using toilets September 8th 1930 3M begins marketing scotch transparent tape Great, it's really cool Well, that's all for this week. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you next week.